Well, good morning, church. Glad to be here preaching the Word of God this morning on a day like today. Last week, in my, uh, my wife and I booked a trip that I'm stoked about, a type of trip I've never been to before. We're going out to uh, Yellowstone, and like, I'm just, I'm giddy. I spend all my, I spend all my, my time during the week uh, down in Atlanta, my, my restaurant's down in, in the tall buildings and, and hustle and bustle. Um, I'm excited to get away and to see God's creation, just see the things that he just, bam, spoke into being. So, so I'm excited. And I, I've been wanting to go on a trip like this for, for a little while, but I remember the point in which I, I wanted to get away. It was when I saw a movie, uh, it was called Free Solo. Anybody seen the movie Free Solo? Uh, I, remember, I remember hearing about the movie Free Solo when it was in theaters. A lot of people now have kind of caught it now that it's been on Netflix and things of that nature. But I, I saw it in, in IMAX when, when, it, when it first was released in theaters. It wasn't in theaters very long. But uh, it was amazing. It's, 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 a, it's a true story of, of, a, of a guy named Alex. And... Alex, if, if, if you don't know about the movie, he, he free solo climbs El Capitan. Uh, maybe you've, I don't have a picture of El Capitan, but you can go look it up. And what, what I mean by free solo climb the mountain was that he climbed the face of this mountain with no ropes, no help, no guide, nothing. We're talking a 3,000 foot climb up the face of this mountain unassisted. So you, you can imagine how long that it would take one to, to climb a mountain assisted. It would, I, I would be scared. Like, I'm scared to go to that rock climbing place down the street across from the mall. That's kind of not my, that's not my scene, okay? But, but in IMAX, it shows these, these beautiful shots and this giant screen, and you just, you're, you're, blood, your heart's pumping, you're like, this guy's going to fall, and, and, and he's hanging on sometimes by just, just a, like a half of an inch as he, as, he, as he lifts his whole body to get to the next pool. It's, it's, it's amazing. But this whole story, this whole movie, this whole documentary, it's, it's about him prepping to do this. He's the first guy that was going to do this. He's not the first guy that tried it. There's folks that had tried it and died in the past, but he's the first guy who's going to do it. He wanted to do it. He's considered one of the best free solo climbers in the world. And what's crazy about this movie, it, it, it's glorious. He ends up doing it. He ends up making it happen. He climbs it. It would be a terrible movie if he didn't, but uh, he... <laughs> I don't know if he'd make it to theaters. <laughs> but uh, he makes it. But, but, but what's crazy is this whole pursuit of climbing this mountain. I mean, this dude is obsessed, and he's focused on nothing else but climbing this mountain. And he kind of lives with this just life that's, that it's nothing is 
Nothing is satisfying. Nothing is happy. Nothing is joyful. He's got like this, this beautiful girlfriend who's sweet and just supports his like his dreams and you know. But he doesn't you know he don't want to get married. He just wants to climb this mountain and he just kind of pushes her off to the side. She still sticks around like a little puppy dog and he's he's giving up the career and he's living in a van. Everything is revolves around this. But then he climbs the mountain. It's just like yeah, I mean yeah, that was good. I guess on on, on to the next thing. This whole thing that he'd given his life to brought no satisfaction. I mean, little satisfaction. Momentary satisfaction. Momentary glory. But on to the next thing. On to the next thing. In our own lives, we all fight the battle for satisfaction. All of us. This week, I, I can imagine that we were trying to find satisfaction in many things. Our jobs, our marriage, our children, our social media accounts, our meals, our health, our reputation, our business. I, I don't know. But I know if you're like me, you're constantly fighting to find satisfaction in a lot just constant pursuit. And as we minister, even in the church, as we minister, we got to know we're ministering to people who are also looking for satisfaction. They're looking to have their needs satisfied. They're looking to have their needs met. And oftentimes, they're looking in all the wrong places. We're ministering to a needy people. In the midst of a world that is looking for satisfaction, we come across this text today in Luke 9. Got your Bibles turned there, Luke 9. We're going to start in verse 7. We're looking, speaking to a world that needs to be satisfied, we, we, we find this point here in Luke 9, 7 through 20 that I want to bring out this morning, and that is this, the main point. Jesus is our ultimate satisfaction. Jesus is our ultimate satisfaction. So if you've got your Bibles, we're gonna, we're gonna, I'm going to read verses 7, uh, ver- verses seven through, through 20. We're going to see how far we get this morning. Follow along as I read, please. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead. By some that Elijah had appeared, and by others, that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On their return, the apostles told him all they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him. And he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now, the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. 
but there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, twelve baskets of broken pieces. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. May God bless the reading of his word. Point one this morning. Jesus encounters people who are in need. Jesus encounters people who are in need. That's the first thing we see here. In this text, we see, before we start in verse 7, let's, let's go to verse 10, and it highlights the fact that, that the apostles were returning. On their return, the apostles told them all that they had done. If, if we remember from, from last week in, in Luke 9, 1 through 6, Jesus, he calls his apostles and he sends them out. He sends them with the ability to heal. Uh, he sends them with the ability to cast out demons, but, but mainly he sends them out to preach the gospel, to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. And so what do they do? They go and they do it. We see that in uh, Luke 9 verse 6, and they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. They disperse, they obey. Like God's workers, where God is the boss, he sends them and they go. All right? And what do we see here? we see somewhat that the message is getting out in verse 10. I'm sorry, in verse 7. It reached Herod, Herod Antipas. There he is. It it reached the ruler of of this area, and he heard about what was happening. The crowds heard about what was happening. The the message is getting out. The the disciples are are somewhat being effective in in their proclamation of the word. Now, we don't know if if the word, whose heart that it's it's sinking into and whose heart it isn't. We don't don't know if the fruit's going to, if it's going to bear fruit yet or not. But we do see this, that most of the crowds are getting it wrong. Most of the crowds aren't seeing Jesus for who he is. Neither neither is, is Herod. While Jesus' popularity is spreading, people are coming to the wrong conclusions. Herod says, some think that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. Some think that it's Elijah. Some think some of the old prophets of old have risen. Herod notes that he had beheaded John. We see this in Mark 6, if you want to see this story, Herod was very intrigued by John the Baptist. He he kind of feared him. He recognized that he was a godly man. He was a holy man. There was something distinct about John, something distinct about his ministry, something unique, the, the way that the Lord would work through such a man. But John called Herod out for his sin. And John didn't and Herod didn't like that. 
Long story short, ultimately, Herod has John the Baptist beheaded. You can be intrigued by the work of the Lord. You can be intrigued by his message. But when encountered with your own personal sin and your own stance as an enemy of God, brought to your attention, those who don't have eyes to see, those who are not born again, those who are not given a new heart, you will react in hostility towards God. Or you will make Jesus out something to be that he is not. Just a good teacher, just a good man, a culture warrior, a social justice war, whatever, whatever that is. These apostles are going to go out, and, and, and many of the work, much of the work they're going to do is going to be fruitful, but much of the work is going to be falling on dead ears, as, as Matt preached about a few months ago in the soils. There's going to be a lot that they'll receive the word with gladness, but it's not going to bear fruit. Just because you have crowds that are talking about Jesus doesn't mean they're actually worshiping Jesus. It's not enough to simply be intrigued by Jesus. You understand that? Maybe you're here this morning, and you're intrigued by Jesus. You're intrigued by religion. You're intrigued by a group of people who do life together. You're intrigued by events. You're intrigued by the opportunity to have something for your kids on, on Sundays, or something for your kids on Wednesdays, or you're, you're intrigued by whatever that is. It's not enough to be intrigued. Jesus doesn't call us to be intrigued. Jesus calls us to worship him and to follow him. It's a big difference. But most of these crowds that Jesus is going to preach to, and most of these crowds that the apostles are going to preach to, they're simply going to be intrigued. They're going to do a lot of work to go out only to be intrigued. But ultimately, these apostles return with a mission report here in, in verse 10. They said, we're, we're, we tell Jesus all that we've done. We've gone out. The word's getting out. And the Holy Spirit seems to be working, but also at the same time, the crowds seem to be getting the wrong answer. This was in the midst of miracles being done, demons being casted out, illnesses being healed, mighty works being done through these apostles to validate the message of the kingdom. They'd worked hard. They got to work. Mark 6 points this out, that... They were working so hard that they didn't even have time to eat. They were exhausted. And so here it, it, it says in, in verse 10 that he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. And Mark says it this way where Jesus tells the disciples, Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. The apostles had worked hard. The apostles obeyed. They got to work. They put their hand to the plow. They traveled. And they laid, they laid it all on the line to go out there and share the news of the kingdom. They obeyed. And you know what? They were tired. They were tired. They were in need of rest. They were in need of a meal. They were probably weary. You ever been there, church? You're giving your life to the ministry, and you're tired. You ever feel that way, elders? You feel that way? 
You know, it's just one thing after another, after another, after another, and then you come home and, and your family needs you, your wife needs you, your kids need you. Mothers, you feel that way? You're laying it all on the line? Ministering to these children every day? You're tired. You're in need. You're in need of rest. You're in need of, of, of a moment to just sit down and rest and to be refreshed. Friends, the gospel ministry is hard work. Jesus, the ministry that Jesus is calling to, it's, it's not a slouch ministry. It's not, a, it's, 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 not a, it's not a job where there's no sweat required. It's not a job where you get a nice, you know, nine to five. The mornings are yours and the, the evenings are yours, but that nine to five, you'll give it to Jesus or you'll give the Sundays to Jesus. Or you'll give whatever, like the, the gospel ministry is hard work. Do you know that? Do you understand that? I feel like oftentimes in church cultures, we want to, we want to make it as light of a load as possible. We want to make it as, as easy as possible. And then the second that like the gospel ministry gets trying or the gospel ministry gets like it, it, it takes much of our time or it takes much of our effort or takes much from our family, like we're like, we're done. We're done. Look at the examples here, though. These apostles, though, they're, they're going and they, they, they worked so much, they didn't have time to eat. There's a time to work. There's a time to rest. But when it's time to work, we, we rest. But listen, where, where, do the, where, do the, where do the apostles find their rest? They find their rest in fellowship with Jesus. They find their rest in fellowship with Jesus. They go away with Jesus. They, they, they go away with themselves to a secluded place and rest with Jesus. Their rest comes in, 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 in and putting their eyes and fixing their eyes and fixing their heart and spending time with Jesus. Some of the best time, it, it is nice to go away, friends, and, and get a vacation. But you know what some of the best times are on vacation? It's time to, get a, to, to shut everything else out and to open God's Word. And, that, and, and there's nothing else just to look at except for the Word of God. As God speaks to you through His Word. As you encounter the living Christ through the word of God and, and you meditate on his goodness and meditate on his holiness, meditate on his love for you, you are refreshed. You're empowered to, to go back. We're not just called to, to, to find value within ourselves, to refresh ourselves and think much of ourselves. No, friends. Refreshment comes from, from being with Jesus. But as they're going, the trip is interrupted. You ever been there? You're ministering? You're traveling, whatever, and your trip's interrupted. Maybe you're headed down to Disney World. When you've got eight kids like me, you're bound to have one, two, three, four, five, six something kids throw up. So, so what should be a five and a half hour trip ends up being a nine hour trip. And, but you know, you're serving these little ones and it's just, it's fun. It's really fun to have, a, to have your trip interrupted. But as, as these, as these, Apostles with Jesus are, 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 crossing, are crossing the sea here. They hop in a boat. They're going. There's this crowd that gets word of where they're going. And this, is, this is a giant crowd that had diseases and, and needed healing and probably demons. 
They were intrigued by Jesus. So, so you can imagine, you know, Jesus and the apostles, they're going to make a beeline across this sea. And, but on the shoreline, you see this giant crowd kind of just following them off in the distance. And, and, and the crowd can see where they're going, so, so they, they like meet them at the other side. So the boat's docked. The crowd's learned of where they're going. They, they follow them. How, how do I get the idea of, of the boat? Go to Mark 6. It's the, it's the other account of this. The crowds follow them, and they welcomed them. Welcome, Jesus! We're here for you! Welcome, apostles! We're here! Oh, by the way, we've got a lot of needs. They retreat, the crowds follow, and what does Jesus do? Jesus ministers to them. Jesus encounters this group of needy people, and he ministers to them. In a moment, we're going to see that it's about 5,000 men. Now, in this culture and time, as they were to take attendance, they would not have counted women, they would not have counted children, would not have counted bond servants. In all likelihood, there's estimated between 10,000 and 15,000 actual people present. We're not talking some small crowd. We're not talking one needy family. We're not talking about like the one person that's going to stop you after church and want to talk and talk and keep you from going to lunch or whatever. Like we're talking 15,000 people likely. 15,000 people. Now, if you've been to State Farm Arena, anybody been to State Farm Arena downtown? Seen a Hawks game or you've been to a concert there? That holds about 19,000 people. To put in perspective, full capacity, about 19,000 people. So we have 15,000 people, between 10 and 15,000 people that show up on this shore. How relaxing for the apostles, right? That's exactly what they needed. That's exactly what they wanted. And Jesus here in Mark 6, Mark 6, 34, it says this. Again, the the parallel account, if you're looking to study this passage, study it alongside Mark 6 throughout the week. It says this, he felt compassion on them. He felt compassion on the crowds. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus sees this giant crowd, this giant needy crowd, this giant inconvenient crowd, this impossibly large crowd, this inconvenient crowd, and you know what he does? He feels compassion on them. Jesus has no emotion but compassion. Just compassion. Jesus isn't annoyed. Jesus isn't angry. Jesus isn't frustrated. Jesus isn't bewildered. Jesus feels compassion because they're like sheep, like dumb sheep. Like helpless sheep. Directionless sheep. Unprotected sheep. Without a shepherd. No one to guide them. No one to feed them. 
No one to protect them. They're helpless. And Jesus says, He has compassion in His heart for such people. A love for such people. A desire to meet their needs. A desire to serve them. A desire to help them. Ultimately, a desire to save them. That's the heart of our Savior. Jesus encounters needy people, inconvenient people, helpless people, and his heart is one of compassion. That's our Savior. Friends, the gospel ministry, the gospel ministry involves needy and difficult people. Let's understand that this morning. The gospel ministry involves needy and difficult people. We're, there, there are going to be those of us in the congregation that are, that are needy and difficult. Hard to get along with. Hard to serve. Hard to like. Hard to love. We can all be that way. None of us in this room are perfect. None, none of us in this room are completely likable. None of us in this room are completely trustworthy. None of us in this room are completely intelligent. None of us in this room are completely sufficient. We are all the needy and broken people, the difficult people, the sinful people, the insufficient, inadequate people that Christ looked at and had compassion on. That's all of us. So as Christ workers, as his ambassadors, as those who represent the king, we are called to have hearts of compassion. But if you're like me, your compassion can wear thin, can't it? Some of you guys are really good at this. Some of you guys are like, you know, amazing at mercy ministry and, and like you're always just always giving the benefit of the doubt and you're always just, and I, and, and man, I, I admire such people like that in our church. My wife is, is one of those people who's, who's really good at that. But if you're like me, I oftentimes struggle with to have compassion. So may we look at Christ in this moment. May we look at our Savior. If that's you and you're struggling with compassion for a believer, you're struggling with patience with another believer, you're struggling with compassion for the, for the lost world, or, or you're struggling to forgive the lost world, friends, look at our Savior. Gaze upon our Savior, Jesus Christ, when encountered with this large crowd here, he has compassion. And let's pray that Christ would conform us to his image, that he would give us hearts of compassion. Jesus came here. He spoke to them of the kingdom of God. He shared the gospel, and he cured those who had need of healing. That's what, that's what the Lord and Savior does. But then we see in point two, the disciples also encounter needy people. The disciples encounter people who are in need. Jesus encounters the people in need. We see how he responds. But also in this same group, the disciples encounter people who are in need. Point two. We, we, we see here two things in this next section. As the, as the apostles encounter people in need, we find a different response. We find that they demonstrate both a lack of faith and a lack of ability. They 
demonstrate a lack of faith and a lack of ability. Let's, let's talk about that, that lack of faith first. We, we see in verse 12 that the day began to wear away. This ended up being a long day. Now, if you can imagine you're trying to minister to, to 10 or 15,000 people, that would not, that, 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 would, that would take a long time. At, at, our, at our Chick-fil-A restaurant, we, we have, you know, about 2,000, 2,100 transactions in, in a 16-hour business day. So that's 2,100 transactions, you know, and we tend to have transactions all day long. Can you imagine how long it would be like we're going we're gonna to try and interact with 10 or 15,000 people? That is a lot. That is a ton. The day begins to wear away. It's getting dark. Evening's coming. Remember, no electricity. It's not like, hey, just turn on the lights. We'll turn on the generator. You know, the, the government light and the utility company, they're going to put out these lights. We're going to be good. No, it's going to be pitch black dark, and they're in the wilderness. Not a good spot to be, is it? It's not where we want to be. Stuck in the wilderness with, 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 with no electricity, no food, nowhere to, nowhere to stay, no nothing. So in the midst of that, when the, as the day begins to wear away, the disciples are recognizing this. They're recognizing it's getting dark. We should remind Jesus. I mean, you know, they begin to take matters into their own hands. They suggest that Jesus should send the crowd away. They suggest Jesus, who they've seen calm the storm, as Matt preached about a few weeks ago as they were in the boat. With his words, they've seen that. They've experienced that. They've experienced Jesus heal the demoniac. They've seen Jesus heal Jairus' daughter, raise her from the dead. They've seen Jesus do miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. And not only that, they've seen Jesus empower them to go out and to heal the sick and to cast out demons to proclaim the gospel. And they did it. They saw fruit. They've seen it all. They've experienced it all. And in this moment, though, in spite of all they've seen, in spite of the credibility of Christ, in spite of what Christ has already done, hey, Jesus, I just thought you should know, it's getting dark. It's getting dark. And I know this, that, the, that the harvest is plentiful here. I know that there's thousands and thousands of people here. I know, there's, I, I know that the, the ministry is ultimately about proclaiming uh, the gospel and building the kingdom. I, I know that. I just thought you should know. It's getting dark, and these people don't have any food or any place to stay. So our suggestion by committee is that you, Jesus, send them away because they'll listen to you. So send them away. Well, you know, and, and by the way, you know, we're here. We're here for some refreshment. We're... I want to, you know, we're not going to say it because we don't want to make it about us, Jesus, but you know what? We haven't eaten either. And so you, I, I'm, I'm just, it's not about us. It's about them because we, because we just, we, you, you get what I'm saying here? A lack of trust in Christ. A lack of trust in his wisdom. A lack of trust in his sovereignty. A lack of trust in his plan. Even if their motives were pure, even if their motives are pure, to, that these people just need, need to go, it still demonstrated a lack 
of faith. Consider how this passage in its totality parallels with Exodus 16. In Exodus 16, we find that the Israelites have already been removed from Egypt by the mighty sovereign hand of God. He worked in mighty ways to remove them. He parted the sea. And then, and then Exodus, Exodus 15, we get this amazing song of Moses. And, and then they, you know, they get out into the wilderness. And all of a sudden, they demonstrate a lack of faith. They, they, they get out there. And in Exodus 16, 3, and, and the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then down in verse 8, and Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him. Who are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. What does a lack of faith look like there in Exodus 16? It looks like a grumbling spirit. They're out there in the wilderness. And, and this, this lack of faith manifests itself in the, in the Israelites as grumbling. It's grumbling. In Luke 9, I'm not sure if the apostles are necessarily grumbling or not, but I think their lack of faith is manifested in the fact that they didn't trust Jesus. They didn't seek Jesus. They didn't get Jesus' opinion. They didn't get Jesus' order. They take matters into their own hands rather than trusting Jesus. Often our, 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 our lack of faith, our lack of faithfulness, it often results in kind of two things. Not one is not being or not, not walking in who Christ has called us to be. It can manifest itself that way. That we're not, we're not walking in who Christ has called us to be. Maybe it's a grumbling spirit. Maybe it's, maybe it's dishonesty. Joylessness. Depression. Whatever. Whatever these things are. We're not, we're not, we're not manifesting. We're not demonstrating the fruit of the spirit or walking in who Christ has made us. Or it's not doing what Christ has called us to do. We're not going to obey. We're not, we're not going to walk in obedience. We're, we're, we're going to, you know, in, in our moment of struggle, in our, in our moment of need, in our moment of faith, faithlessness, we struggle. So, so you know, we, we don't share the gospel. We, we remove ourselves from the church. We isolate ourselves. We, we, we don't lead our families. We, whatever, 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 whatever. It's all faithlessness. It's all not trusting in Christ taking matters into our own hands rather than coming to the king and asking us, Lord, who do you want us to be by your power? What do you want us to do by your power? So friends, how does a lack of faith, this is a question for you, how does, how does a lack of faith in your life manifest itself? Is there something in your life right now where you are not trusting God? Well, you're relying on your own efforts. You're relying on your own wisdom. You're walking in rebellion against God. You're not seeking God. Friend, Look to Christ today. Repent. Confess it to Christ. 
He is compassionate. He is compassionate. He's quick to forgive. He's quick to change you and to sanctify you and to make you like Christ. Confess it. But in this moment here, as the disciples say, hey, we're worried about their, their meals and their lodging, Jesus calls the disciples to feed the crowds. You know what he says? He says, you feed them. You feed them. Apostles, feed them. You give them something to eat. These words here are words that Jesus was alluding to as he, as he, as he thinks about 2 Kings 4, 42 through 44, where Elisha called his servant to feed 100 men with 20 loaves of bread. Ultimately, we, if you read the story, I, I won't rehash it. His servant, by the power of the Lord, ends up feeding 100 men with 20 loaves of bread, which was a miracle, right? It was a miracle. I can, but you know, here's the thing. I, I can imagine a scenario, depending on the size of the loaf of the bread, where 20 loaves could feed 100 men. Maybe not to where they're full, but you know, I mean, it's still a miracle, and it's a miracle, and it's in the Bible for a reason. But look at this story now. In Luke chapter 9. These apostles quickly acknowledge their inadequacy. You want us to feed 10, 15,000 people? Jesus is like, yeah, what you got? What you got? It's like the moment where a kid breaks something in my house, puts a hole in the wall. I'm like, you going to pay for it? Yeah, I'm going to pay for it. What you got? Brings out a little piggy bank and all over. Here's a little bit of change. Ain't, ain't going to pay for it. Inadequacy. There's 10,000 people. There's 15,000 people. And you know what we've got? We've got five loaves and two fish. Five loaves, two fish. That's what we got. Five loaves, two fish. Five loaves, two fish would not feed this room. I told the elders this morning, I said, I, as we were praying, I said, man, I so wanted today to bring in five loaves and two fish, and I wanted to start over here and hand it out just to see how far we got, just so you guys could see just how absolutely crazy it would be to try and feed 10, 15,000 people with five loaves and two fish. It's impossible. In the Mark account as well as this one is the disciples say, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people, unless we're going to go buy it. In the Mark account, Mark 6, it, it refers to the fact that it would cost 200 days wages just to feed these people. 200. Eight months worth of work just to feed this amount of people. 10,000, 15,000 people. I mean, we're talking like a Carly wedding, a Kinsley wedding, 
Savannah, I mean, we're talking all of it, all the costs, man. We're going we're gonna to put all, we're going we're gonna, to, all these people, more than that, more than that, okay? Giant, a giant meal. It's expensive. And, and there's a point there where like, Jesus, you sent us out with no money bag. You sent us out and telling us not to bring any food. You sent us out with no stat. You know we don't have anything. We don't have any money. We didn't go collect money. We, we got the shirt on our back. We're living with strangers. Gee, like, come on now. Like, we got five loves and two fish. The disciples quickly have to acknowledge their inadequacy, which is a great place to be. Oh, it's a great place to be. Acknowledging your inadequacy is one of the best places God can have you. Do you believe that? Some of you do. Some of you don't. Some of you may just want nothing but positive affirmations. Some, some, some of you may just want people to just to constantly build you up. And yes, we need encouragement. And yes, we need love. I'm not saying that. But as we seek to minister to others which is who we've called to do. I'll repeat the same thing I did last week. For those of you who didn't hear it, we are all called to full-time ministry. Every single one of you. Every single one of you. If you are a follower of Christ Jesus, if you are a member of this church, if you're coming up here this morning and, and you're partaking of the Lord's Supper, which is for followers of Jesus Christ only, then dear friends, you are called to full-time ministry. And know this. As we seek to minister to others, we got to understand this, that we are not enough. We're not. Let me, let me say that a different way. You are not enough for other people. Your gifts, your abilities, your talents, your personality, your friendship, it is not enough. Jesus didn't call you to be enough. That's not the point. So husbands, hear this. In your marriage, you will never be enough for your wife. You won't. You will never be enough for your wife. Wives, you will never be enough for your husband. Moms, maybe struggling with mom guilt this morning. You will never, ever be enough for your children. Bosses, you will never be enough for your employees. Students, you will never be enough for the friends at school. If you're out evangelizing, it case you like your personality and your wit, it will never, ever, ever be enough. It won't. Don't try to be something that God has called you not to be. You're not the point. Only, only Jesus can satisfy. You know what your job is, husband? To point your wife to the only one who can satisfy. You know what your job is, mom? To point your kids to the only one that can satisfy. You know what your job is, evangelist? To point the lost and dying world to the only one that can satisfy. Elders, your responsibility is to point this church 
to the only one that can satisfy. You will never lead the church well enough. You'll never encourage the church well enough. You will never have a vision that's big enough to satisfy the hearts of the people in the congregation. Only Jesus can do that. You're not enough. Know that. Amen. Maybe glory in that this morning. May that take the weight off your shoulders. Nevertheless, Christ still calls us to be faithful. As we see this in point three, Jesus alone satisfies their need. Jesus alone satisfies their need. And he says to his disciples, as, as they recognize that they cannot feed this crowd, they cannot sustain this crowd, they have nothing in and of themselves to offer this crowd. He says this, Jesus, okay, have them sit down in groups of about 50. Apostles are like, okay, I can do that. Yeah, we got this. All right. even, even then, man, we're talking like we're talking 10,000 people here. This is like 200 groups of 50. I mean, I mean, giant big groups. I mean, spread out everywhere, groups of 50. Imagine, I oh, to be there. Oh, to get a picture of this event, just this small little group of, 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 of apostles in this giant crowd. Just, just a picture would, would be amazing. Sitting in groups of 50. And they did. And they all sat down. And Jesus calls his disciples simply here to be faithful. Okay, go be faithful and watch me work. Go be faithful and watch me work. You're not providing the meal. I am providing the meal. Jesus provides the meal. He takes the loaves and he takes the two fish. And he looks up to heaven. He looks up to heaven. Prays over the food and he says a blessing over the people. Again, this should, this should bring to mind Ephesians, I'm sorry, Exodus 16 again, where, where did the bread that God provided come from? The manna, it came from heaven. The bread was sent from heaven. Jesus lifts his eyes to heaven and he says a blessing over them. And he broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And as Jesus does this, he, he hands the food as he's creating bread and fish ex nihilo out of nothing. The creator, Lord, the sustainer, in his sovereignty and in his power, he just keeps handing bread and bread and bread. He just sits there. Fish, fish. It's amazing. See this in Colossians, it praises Jesus Christ for being the, the God whom, whom all things were created through and all things were created for. You see Jesus being the creator God here, creating it out of nothing. The bread is not coming down from heaven. The bread is coming through the hands of Jesus Christ as he feeds and he feeds and he feeds just right there. An incredible supernatural event. It's one of the only miracles, friends, that is found in all Four Gospels. See that? This amazing, powerful, God-glorifying event. As Jesus is glorified in satisfying this crowd. Because in, in verse 17, they ate and they were satisfied. Everyone ate. 
And they were satisfied. Jesus is the only one, the only one, friends, who can satisfy. They had a giant appetite. Do you get that? This, this crowd was hungry. They traveled around to, 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 to follow these disciples. The, the disciples were hungry because they had not eaten. And Jesus fills their appetite. And you know how Jesus doesn't do that? Jesus didn't supernaturally decrease their appetite. Jesus didn't supernaturally decrease their hunger. God created us hungry. Do you understand that? Your problem is not your hunger. Your problem is what you eat oftentimes. That we try to, we try to fill that appetite with junk, with terrible food, with a terrible nourishment. And we get, we get bloated, we get sick, we don't feel good. And, and the key is not just simply, hey, you need to de- decrease your appetite. You need to eat less. Oh, no, friend, you need to look to Christ in feast. Look to Christ, this buffet of glory and sustenance and joy and feast. The problem is not your appetite. The problem is that the things of this world will never satisfy it. Money will never satisfy it. Sex will never satisfy it. Children will never satisfy it. Marriage will never satisfy it. Your job will never satisfy it. Earthly glory will never satisfy it. Your your team winning the Super Bowl will never satisfy it. Nothing will satisfy it but Jesus. So we must stop. We must stop trying to have all of these earthly things, not even not just sin, not even things that are not sinful. Not even things that are, that are good, like parents and family and marriage and ministry. These are all great things, but also things that are just, that are lousy, that the world chases. We've got to stop chasing such things in order to sa- for them to satisfy our hearts. They will not satisfy. They will not satisfy. And Christ isn't saying, you just need to stop hungering. You just need to stop being hungry. Jesus is saying, here I am, feast. Here I am, feast. We see this, turn in your Bibles to, to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verse 33, Jesus says this. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, the crowd said this, Sir, give us this bread always. We would like that type of bread. And really what they're asking for is, we want some miracles. We want some more miracles, Jesus. Give us something like, you know, give us, give us some of that, that good bread. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He is the bread of heaven. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus fulfills every hunger. 
every thirst, every longing, every desire. Jesus, friends, is enough. Jesus is more than enough. And Jesus is far greater than every earthly temporal pursuit that we are tempted to follow and to fill our lives with. Christian, see that this morning. See that. Where has your heart, what has your heart longed for this week? I mean long for. You've obsessed with. You've thought about. You've pursued for me. Honestly, I've already told you about it. It's my trip. My wife's like, stop talking about the trip. I'm excited. And I, I know in my heart there's like this expectation that the trip's going to somehow meet some need in my heart. And I'm sure the trip's going to be fun. But you know what's going to happen when I get back from the trip? I'm going to look forward to the next trip. It will not satisfy. On to the next trip. Friends, the only thing that can satisfy, period, is Jesus. Oh, he's the only one worth pursuing. He's the only one worth fixing our eyes on. He's the only one worth living for. And he's the only one in which true satisfaction and blessing come. He's enough and he's more than enough. Because as we see this, Jesus, he feeds the crowd. And what happens next? And what was left over was picked up. How many baskets full? Twelve baskets. One basket for each of these little disciples to go and get their own little basket. And they all come back and they all round up to Jesus and each has a full basket. Can you imagine placing those baskets back down right in front of Jesus? And just glorying in who he is. Realizing this is the bread sent from heaven. This is the one who's meant to satisfy. This is him. This is the one whom we are to feast on. Friend, what are you looking for? To satisfy your heart today. In this moment, what are you looking for? I'm talking to anybody else. I'm talking to you. What are you looking to fill your longings in your heart? If it's anything other than Jesus, if it is anything other than Jesus, it will not work. Oh, friends, but if it is Jesus, oh, wait to experience the joy and the peace and the excitement of life with Christ, fellowship with Christ, the sustenance of Christ, feasting on Christ, the joys of the gospel ministry, the joys of of a dependent life on Jesus Christ. But here's what's amazing. We get to verses 18 through 20, and I'm going to preach more on this next week. So don't worry. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? 
Now again, after he's already done ministry, 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 revelation, revelation, revelation. And then here is a crowd of 10 or 15,000 people whom Jesus supernaturally feeds with five loaves and two fishes. And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah and others that one of the prophets of old is risen. Then he said to them, them being his apostles, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. We're going to expound on what it meant for Christ, for Jesus to be the Christ of God next week. But I want to suffice it to say, after this miracle, this important miracle again that is in all four Gospels, the disciples get the answer, right? At least Peter does. The Christ of God. Which is the point of Jesus providing the bread. Just like it was the point back in Exodus chapter 16. Exodus 16 verse 12. I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, your God. The point of Christ's feeding in Exodus and the point of Christ's feeding here in Luke chapter 9 is to reveal that he is the Lord God. He is to be worshipped. He is to be followed. He is to be feasted upon. Oh, and he is worthy of our praise and our glory. Friends, may we pursue Christ with all that we have. May we seek to see him daily. May we taste and see that the Lord is good. May we give our lives to this church. And may this be our message. May our message not be programs that you can bring your kids to, a building that's nice, a nice sign, a nice people, a nice community. May our message be this, church. Christ and him crucified, and only he can satisfy. May we be faithful to proclaim it, church.